and join us tonight as we get ready to study God's Word and worship. Super excited. Tonight we're going to be doing Hebrews chapter 7 and chapters 8, um, taking a look at Melchizedek and the better priesthood. And really excited about what God's doing. There's a lot of, been a lot of good energy. In Tonight we're going to spend time worshiping. Uh, Pastor Mike's going to lead us and Jessica and Cecil and, and just really uh, being before the presence of God. So let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for the privilege to be able to come before your throne room of grace. And as we study tonight, Lord Jesus, you're the high priest that has opened the way for us to enter into this place of worship. So, Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts from from this temporal planet and into the Holy of Holies, where we can honor you, God, with our voices, with our lives, and our very being. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with, with... things going on in their life, may they fade away at least for the next hour and, and fully embrace all that you have for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory and praise, nobody but Him. This 
Yeah. 
We just ask that tonight, Lord, we just want to be open to what you have for us in the book of Hebrews. Lord, we want to be open to what you have for us in our life tonight, God. Don't let this just be another Bible study for us, one of a thousand that we've been to, but let it be tonight, Lord. The word of truth changing our lives from the inside out. So, God, we give you tonight, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Hebrews 7. As we continue our journey through the Bible, we uh, will finish our journey through the Bible this year sometime. <laughs> we'll get there, I promise. It may take us a little bit to get there, but, but we will get there. We had a, we had a great study with our, our men's group this morning. We had uh, 27 guys showed up and, and went through uh, Revelation 7 this morning and really seeing what it's like to be worshiping in the throne room of God. Can you imagine what that would be like? Right now we worship through kind of a, a mist, a glass dim, that we really can't see the risen Savior. We can't see the throne of God. We can't see what that looks like. And so there is a hesitation for us to be fully committed in our worship. And in that place, because we really can't see it, we, we worship by faith, we worship in spirit. Um, but there's going to come a time when we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at the throne of God. We're going to be surrounded by the 24 elders and myriads and myriads of people all saying, you want to talk about a choir? Oh my goodness. going to be amazing during that time. And to get to that place, God had provided a path, a priest, a, a better faith system, a better structure of faith that transcends Judaism and it transcends anything that the world can offer. It boggles the mind to think about having the best and then leaving the best and going back to second best. Going back to a shadow or a practice that really doesn't promise and give the freedom that we have as believers through Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians, they're in danger of abandoning this new faith. Now, mind you, we can look at it now and we can look at it from our eyes and go, well, what are you thinking? But this is all relatively new for them. They're in a place where there's a lot of persecution, a lot of hardship. Uh, Christianity is, is relatively new, where Judaism has got centuries and centuries of societal norm, but also all of the other aspects that are with this. And as the writer is giving reasons why it's better, why Jesus is better, we have to pay attention, and, and it's always been God's intention to bring a better worship, a better priest, better access, better promises, and a better covenant. The things of the past were just shadows 
of the reality that's there. If, if, and I often wonder what it would be like if God was to pull back the veil into heaven to actually let us see what is there. Well, we know Stephen did it, but he was near death. And he looked and Jesus was standing ready to receive him. But how motivated would we be? Well, one of the reasons why Jesus' priesthood is better, and keep in mind, we've got, to put our, we've got to take our westernized hats off and our politics and all of those things, and we've got to put on the Jewish mindset and, and understand that the priesthood is everything to the Jews. And so within this, the priesthood was the mediator between God and mankind. You couldn't go before God on your own. You had to have a priest. And so imagine, you know, your, your, your parents, your grandparents, great-grandparents, all of this culture that is always ingrained, the only way to get to God is through the priest, through the sacrificial system, through going to the temple, and all of these things. But if you did these things, if you jumped through these hoops, and you served these things with the right heart, then your sacrifice would be accepted as the priest would, would represent you before God. So using that same language and that same understanding, the writer of Hebrews is declaring that there is a superior priesthood. Now, they had always known the priesthood of Aaron. And, and that was started way back when they came out of the exile of Egypt and the Aaronic priesthood was set up within this. But there's a priesthood that's better than that, and that's what brings us to chapter 7. One of the things that we're going to see about the priesthood being better is that the priesthood of, of Jesus, who is the priesthood, follows the priesthood of Melchizedek, came before the Aaronic priesthood. We're also going to see that the priesthood of Melchizedek is a king priest. It's a special priesthood. Some of the difficulties that they had under the priesthood of Aaron is that the priest would die. And we think about, there's a faith system that's in our world today. It's called Catholicism. What's one of the dangers of Catholicism? Well, when one pope goes, you get another pope, right? Well, when, when that pope comes in, is he going to do everything the same as the previous pope? No. So it has this kind of quasi-political system in Catholicism, where one pope comes in and another pope comes in and changes what the first one did. And, and then, like our pope now that, that we have that's, that's over Catholics and in Rome, speaks ex cathedra and, and is speaking and saying things. In fact, I just, uh, just saw on the news today that the pope was qualifying certain kinds of relationships to be qualified as marriage. And there's a lot of people that are having a problem with that, as they should. But within that... They hold him as being the spokesperson of God. So for the Jews to look at the high priest, they look at him as the spokesperson of God. But as these priests would cycle in and out, sometimes you would have good priests, sometimes you'd have bad priests within this. The high priest might be good or, or not. But Jesus brings a better priesthood because he's eternal. He's holy. He is different than, than all these other things. And so we, we're going to understand why the priesthood that Jesus brings is much better than anything that was a shadow of the old. Religion is not what God wants. He wants a relationship with us. 
the law brings us into a place of understanding our sin, but Jesus brings us into an understanding of a Savior within that. And so even as a Gentile Christian, I can embrace the concept of a high priest. I can embrace the concept that Jesus is a high priest that is far better than anything that, has, that he has in this world. And while this is written with very, very much a Jewish um, uh, tenure and, and overshadowing of this language, I have to ask myself, is there anything in my old religious life that I really want to go back to? Having grown up in the Lutheran church and, and gone through communion and, and, and catechism and all the different things, would I really want to go back to the liturgy that is part of it? And I would say no. Because I have a relationship with Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And, and within this. And so there's not anything that I want to go back to, but I want to move forward. The other aspect that we're going to see tonight is the call to maturity. One of the things that the writer is calling the people to do is to grow up. To challenge yourself spiritually. To grow in maturity. And we need that. The minute you start settling in and settling for a second best or settling for the easy believism, you're going to see your faith weaken. You're going to see your spiritual growth dwarf within these things. And so we need to keep challenging ourselves. These are some really hard lessons that we'll find in 7 and in 8. So we're going to dig out the nuggets. We're going to really do the hard work. Let me pray as we get into this. God, I pray that even now as we get into 7 and 8 of this book, of Hebrews, help us to understand. Holy Spirit, teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 10. As he says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham he was as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, having commanded in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren. All these are descendants of Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case... One receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, also paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So we take a look at this as, as the writer goes deeper. And he says, this is Melchizedek, the king priest. Now, what's different about Melchizedek than the Aaronic priesthood? The Aaronic priesthood was only regulated to be just priests. They couldn't hold an office 
of king. They were only to be in the priesthood. Melchizedek was spoken earlier and is spoken again as the king of Salem the, and the priest of the Most High. And he met Abraham as they, they were coming back into the valley of the kings. And there was five kings that were total there that were there. Abraham met them after there was a slaughter. And Melchizedek is mentioned here actually in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 to 22. Here's the account. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of the Korolemer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, and, that, and, and this, the oath was that you, I wasn't going to get rich from you. We look at this, and so we see a real king, a real person, that is, that is a real king of Salem within this. These four kings came back, they took Sodom they, and, they, and the other kings that were with him. And, with, and what had happened was Lot's nephew, or Abraham's nephew Lot, was taken. And so there was this big battle that was, that was happening. Now on his way back, he meets these kings that are there and is recognized and worshipped, this Melchizedek. And there was a tithe that was, that was given within this. And so the king of Sodom came out and he says, I'm glad that you came out within this. Let me give you the spoils. He says, no, you're not going to make me rich. Abram was a man of integrity. He had a personal relationship with Yahweh God even before the priesthood was established. Within this, there is an act of worship for this king and there is a tithe that is given to him. It's interesting that as the other kings came out, this Melchizedek came out, met with Abram, and responded with him. Did you notice what he brought with him? What? Bread and wine. Now, what does that make you think of instantly? Communion. Makes you instantly think of communion. So when you look at this king that comes out and, and he's bringing with him bread and wine, we see this pictured later on within this idea of communion. Abraham gives a tenth or a tithe to this king to honor the king. The only other place where Melchizedek is mentioned within this interaction is in Psalms 110.4. And it says, And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What does this tell us about the priesthood of Melchizedek? It's an eternal priesthood. Not limited, like the Aaronic priesthood. It's an eternal priesthood in an eternal order within this. And so the Aaronic priesthood becomes a shadow of the Melchizedek priesthood, but it's not equal to. And so we should never equalize the Aaronic priesthood with the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is a much higher priesthood established before the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was established so that Israel would have access to Yahweh God and an access to sacrifice within this. Whereas the Melchizedek priesthood is much greater because he's known as what? The king of righteousness. 
Within this, we see that he's without genealogy. No father, no mother. Is genealogy a big deal for Jews? Huge. And the fact that there's no genealogy mentioned, when you go through Genesis all the way through, in anywhere in the Old Testament, are genealogies carefully recorded? Absolutely. And you take a look at the genealogy of Jesus. Was it deeply recorded? Both sides, from Mary's side and from Joseph's side, within this. Yet it is noted here that Melchizedek has no father and mother. No genealogy that is there. And he's eternal within this. This bread and wine as, as this foreshadow there. And Abraham does something that nobody should have done unless they were God. Abraham worships him. And he offers the tithe to him within this. This tells us that this king is special. That he is unique. Within this. One of the difficulties that are, that are in this is, who is this king? Was he a, a real person? The answer is yes. Did he have form of human? Yes. Well, then who is he? Well, I believe this to be a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. That is there. He has no beginning, no end, but he's there. We are not given much information for him other than these accounts that are there. So then, what do we know about Melchizedek? I would caution you. We only know what the Bible tells us. And we shouldn't go beyond that. We shouldn't make great speculations within this. The Gnostics did, and they got it wrong. The Gnostics declared that Melchizedek was an angel. And there was a Gnostic heresy that was going around that saying that, that this Melchizedek was an angelic appearance that came from heaven to meet Abraham. Okay, theologians. Is there a problem with Abraham falling down and worshiping an angel? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. So, the Gnostics... They struggled because they didn't believe that anything in human flesh could be holy. They even discounted the resurrection of Jesus. The Gnostics said that Jesus only resurrected in spirit, not in flesh. There was another Gnostic heresy that came down that the Spirit of God came upon human man Jesus at the baptism and then departed from this human man Jesus prior to his death on the cross. Is there a problem with that? Huge problem with that. So what do people tend to do? When they don't understand something, they make up a definition. They come to their own conclusion of what things would be. We, when we take a look at the context, both of Hebrews and Genesis... Genesis is a historical book. It's a historical book that tells us what's going on. It's not allegorical at all within this. And so because it's a historical context with the kings, they would have all been known within this and in this context. And instead of coming and being rich, Melchizedek blesses him for what? His worship. 
this king priest blesses Abraham for his worship. Does God bless us for our worship of him? Yes, absolutely he does. Worship is the means and the mode by which we connect with God in our heart within this. The Aaronic priesthood would establish a pattern of worship, wouldn't it? Through sacrifice and obedience within this. And so we look at this, this condition that is there. Now, can I fully explain it? The answer is absolutely not. I can't. And I don't know anybody that can. And to try to explain it beyond what the Scripture tells us is, is futile because it would be guessed at most. But what do we see? God uses types of real things as a shadow of things in the future. Can you think of something else that was very real in the Jewish faith journey that was a shadow of something that was very real in heaven? Two structures, the tabernacle and the temple. They were all given to, to Moses and, and to design and to build as a model of those things that are in heaven. They're types that are there of the, of the place of God. The priesthood on earth was a shadow. The Aaronic priesthood was a shadow of the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. That is there. So God gave to them this, this priesthood knowing that Jesus would fulfill this role. And the priesthood would give the law, and that's where God would begin with Aaron. They would give the law, they would give the sacrifice, and God was very detailed in the sacrifices, was he not? If you remember years ago, it seems, when we went through Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, we went through those passages and we studied all those laws. Are those laws very detailed? Absolutely. Why? Because God wanted to set a pattern by which sin would be revealed and also worship would be done. And if you did it outside of the, con the construct of what God designed, was your, was your sacrifice acceptable? No. no, it wasn't. So we look at all of these things in this order of Melchizedek and this priesthood of Melchizedek. And so the writer has taken the, these people that are wanting to leave their relationship with Jesus, relationship with Yahweh God, and they want to go back to the religion of Judaism. And he's saying, what are you doing? You're chasing shadows. It's kind of like trying to catch fake butterflies. Have you ever seen somebody? Can you imagine somebody? And you're watching them and they're just kind of like grabbing at air. What are you doing? I'm grabbing a butterfly. There's no butterflies there. We look at this and, and so to go backwards is very immature. Why do people go backwards? Because they're scared. Because life gets hard. Because it's easier. I want to go back to the comfortable. I want to go back to the known. I don't want to grow. I like it. I like what I have. God calls us to grow in our faith and knowledge of who? Jesus Christ. Not our faith and knowledge of a religious system that was meant to point us towards Jesus Christ. The other thing that's interesting in, in this is Jesus was not born of the tribe of Levi, was he? He was born of the tribe of Judah. So his priesthood is completely different. His heritage is different. He, he was not like all of the other priests that are within this. 
And so we've got to understand that salvation that Jesus brings and worship that Jesus brings is going to be completely different than what the old was. I know a lot of people, they get stuck in the old. You know what the death nail of, of any faith system or any, any person or any church is? These words. We've always done it this way. I've always done it this way. No. God wants you to move forward. To think about the fact, this concept, that to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, alone, is completely culturally different than anything that these Jews ever experienced. If you were a Jew, how how were your sins absolved? What did you have to do? Sacrifice. How often? Every time you sin. At least once a year for atonement, right? What does the sacrifice do? The sacrifice reminds you you're a sinner. Every time I sin, i got to bring my sacrifice. And every time I bring that sacrifice, it reminds me I'm still a sinner. And with every sacrifice, I'm reminded that I'm still a sinner. Now, while the sacrifice, sacrificial system had value to remind us that, are, that we're a sinner, it points us to our need for a Savior within this. And so the principle of grace is superior to the principle of sacrifice, is it not? Because the principle of sacrifice says, I have to do something, offer something that will cover my sin. Grace says, the principle of grace says, your sins are forgiven not of anything that you, that you earn or you do. So why would you go back? Well, because I've always done it this way. And it makes me feel better. Because it's in the comfortable within this. One of the things that I think is important is, is asking the question, what was giving to God all about? What was Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek all about? Do you know that giving is an act of worship? That's a primary act of worship. To be able to give back to God the first fruits of that which you have been given acknowledges his provision to be able to offer these sacrifices. And so there is this element of, of giving, and it also recognizes superiority. When you give back to God, you're recognizing that God is superior to you, and you're giving back to him because he's superior. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 18 to 22, it says this, So Jacob rose early in the morning and took a stone that had put under his head and set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top, and he called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Now Jacob had made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me on this journey and take that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, I will return to my father's house in safety, and then the Lord will be my God. The stone which I have set up will be God's house, and all that you give me, and I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, the tithe was not really set into place in the law at, at this point, but within this, it's recognizing the lesser is blessing the greater. When we gather here, we take up an offering for the church. It is the lesser blessing the greater. When we come and we offer song and worship, it is the lesser blessing the greater. 
I can tell you this, worship is not about you. Worship is about God. If you make worship about you and what you're comfortable with, you've missed the whole point of worship. It's to be able to bless the lesser, bless in the greater, as Jacob did. And to be able to be into this place, in the same way the Aaronic priesthood facilitated the lesser of the people blessing the greater. Abraham did that with Melchizedek. And to be able to honor him. And so when we see these verses 4 through 10, he observes how, how Abraham had blessed him with this tithe recognizing him, and he set this pattern. But the Jews wanted to go back to the lesser system within this. It's a shadow. Question. What happens to a shadow when full light is brought out? The shadow disappears. Right? When, there, when, when full light happens... The shadow disappears. And so the writer of Hebrews is calling these believers basically this. Step out of the shadows and into the light of Christ. He's calling them step out of the shadows of religion. Step out of the shadows of works. Step out, step out of the shadows of what you feel comfortable with and step into the full light of Christ. I can tell you this. The most amazing thing that will ever happen to your faith journey is when you get out of the shadows of the I can'ts, I don't knows, the uncomfortables, I don't understand, and you say, Jesus, teach me. And the full light of Christ. When you fully fall into the hands of Jesus, when you fully recognize Him as your high priest, the one that gives you when you fully embrace all that God has for you. Paul would write to the church in Ephesians 5.8, he says this, For you were formerly of darkness. That's who you were. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What does he say? It's time to grow up. I know so many Christians that walk in the shadows of their religion, walk in the shadows of fear, walk in the shadows of, of the I can'ts, I'm not worthies, all of these other things. They're close enough to be able to see some of the light of Christ, but not fully committed enough to walk in the light of Christ. Boldness. Standing firm, standing fast. We serve a high priest that has given us full access to God. Do you realize... As a, as a child of God, you have full access to God right now where you're at. You don't have to, it's not based on what you do, what sacrifice you... I, I've, I've talked with so many people that, that would tell me, you know, I can't become a Christian because I'm not good enough yet. Does that work? Explain to me how that works. I'll never be good enough. But Christ's sacrifice is enough. And so the priesthood of Jesus and the order of Melchizedek is, is better because the old priesthood was imperfect. The new priesthood is much better. If you look at 11 to 14, it says this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and it's not, for on the basis of the people received the law, what further need was there for another priesthood to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed... Of necessity, there takes 
place a change of the law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was a descendant from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priest. Why did God choose to have Jesus come from the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi? You ever think about that? Why? If the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe, wouldn't it make sense that God would be consistent? He moves out of it. Why? Because the Aaronic priesthood was inadequate. The law was inadequate. If the, if the Aaronic priesthood was adequate to save, and the law, which it represented, was adequate to save, would we ever need a Savior? No, because we have the law. We have a priesthood. If the Aaronic priesthood and the law was perfect, then we wouldn't need a Savior, would we? But the problem is it's not perfect. It's interesting that word if is in what's called a second conditional clause. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, it's not. And by implication, all other faith systems are imperfect. Well, what are you saying, Carrie? Any other faith system that is not based on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone. Any other faith system is imperfect. And it doesn't matter if it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, any other faith system. Any other faith system. It doesn't matter. Now, has man created alternate faith systems other than trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Sure. Why? You ever think about that? Why do we create alternate faith systems? Because we create a, a system that makes us feel good. But it was, it was all imperfect. Even the faith system of the Aaronic priesthood was imperfect, and so we needed a perfect priest to come. Verses 15 to 19 says this, and this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, that being Jesus, who has become such not on the basis of the law of the physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is a test of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So we look at this, and so why is it a perfect priesthood? Because it's a, it's a perfect priesthood because it brings us to God. Can you imagine having to rely on me for your spirituality? That's a scary thought. Y'all don't need me. You really don't. You have Jesus. I'm here to be able to study God's Word and, and, and to point you to God's Word and to point you to Jesus. But after that, I need to get out of the way. And you really need to be able to trust in Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus brings into a time of perfection. He's the one that you need to lean on. And, and, and pastors and shepherds are there to care for the flock and to nurture and, and to train up. But, we, but really, you're under the care of Jesus. And you really don't need me. But under the Aaronic priesthood, their system, they had to have the priest within this. 
is very clear. He says, the law that couldn't save. Romans 8.3 says this. Paul would write, For if the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And in Galatians 3.24, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The law is good because it leads us to Jesus. But the law only takes you so far. Jesus is the one that takes us the rest of the way within this. And people, as I said, would go to the Old Testament priest to be reminded that they're a sinner. Believers go to Jesus, their high priest, who reminds them that they're saved. Question. Do you want to go to a guy who reminds you what a dirty, rotten sinner you are? Or do you want to go to the guy who says, your sins are forgiven and you're saved? It's very simple. It really is that simple. And so Jesus is that perfect priest because not only is He reminded us that we're saved, but He's eternal. And He gives an eternal hope. If the priest was to offer a sacrifice for your sin... Would he have to offer another one? Sure. So it's not an eternal hope. It's only good as long as you're still not a sinner, right? Well, how long will that last? About 20 feet. You offer the sacrifice, you turn around, and you see your neighbor that's made you mad, and then you hate him, and it's like, dang it, i got to go again. Right? You think about it. If we operated under the Aaronic priesthood, and you all came in, and you brought your your doves and, and, and all the different things, and we did all the sacrifices in here. And you're like, oh, we're good, we're good. I offered my sacrifice here at Warren Community Fellowship, and I'm good. And you walk out those doors, and, and somebody had opened their car door on your brand new truck and dinged it, and you're like, oh, no. i got to go back in and offer another sacrifice. Or you get out on Highway 30, and somebody goes, oh, i got to turn around and go offer another sacrifice. It, it doesn't make sense. Jesus is a better high priest because He reminds us that our sins have been perfectly forgiven. Because He perfectly paid the price. And He perfectly represents us before a holy God. And onward and onward says, on and on says, carry is forgiven. What happens if I sin again? Still forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us and continues to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. Should I go on sinning just because that grace is abounding? Paul would say what? May it never be. But within this, we have this hope. I've also talked with many people that are scared of losing their salvation. That maybe they haven't been good enough. What faith system is that belief based on? The law... Or grace. It's the law. Because I'm not good enough. But Jesus stands before His Holy Father and says, yes, He's good enough because my righteousness has been put on His account. Within that. It's a better hope because I am fully secure in Christ. I may not feel secure from time to time. But my feelings will lie to me. It's not what my feelings say, it's what Jesus says. And Jesus says, your sins have been paid for, it is finished. 
we should never ever be in that place where we would say, well, it's not good enough. Because the death of Jesus was good enough. It's a better hope that brings us into an eternal future. And, and it's not based on empty promises. Verses 20 to 22. He goes on. He says, Inasmuch it was not without an oath, for what they did became priests was without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee, guarantee of a better covenant within this. You understand what Old Testament and New Testament stands for, right? Old Testament is Old Covenant. Literally, Old Covenant. New Testament is New Covenant. Now, if the Old Covenant was good, then why would we have to have a New Covenant? Well, because the Old Covenant couldn't do what it needed to be done. So we have the New Covenant. So when we take a look at our Bibles, we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We have an oath that, that is a perfect oath because God swears unto Himself that He doesn't change. Eternal God will never lie, will He? Will eternal God ever change His character? No. Is eternal God always going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever? Can you trust an eternal God for His yes to be yes and His no to be no? Yes. Absolutely. Can you trust a human priest to be that consistent? No. So why would you ever want to go backwards? These Jewish believers were shaken by their circumstances and the difficulties. You know what causes us to go backwards? Persecution. Hardship. Suffering. People are told, hey, become a Christian and your life is going to be easy. Is that true? No. In fact, I think it's harder being a Christian. Why? Because you become enemy number one to Satan. And he wants to take you out. He's going to destroy everything that God loves. And God loves you. So all of the persecution comes and you're like, well, God, could you take the target off my back for a while within this? We look at the disciples and the apostles and all that they went through. But we've got to understand that even in difficulties, God is able, is he not? Will God keep you through hardships? Yes. Will God keep you even through the doorway of death? Yes. Yes, He will. Why? Because Jesus guaranteed that promise with His life. In John 17, in praying to the Father, He said, Father, I thank You that no one can take them out of My hand. You are secure, guaranteed for eternal life. Why? Because Jesus paid His life as a ransom for you. That's why He is a better priest. 23 to 25, the former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Here's something that will blow your mind. Abraham trusted in his high priest, Melchizedek, Jesus. You trust in the same high priest, Jesus. Same, same person, same job. Saving to the uttermost. 
There is no changing of the guard, and therefore there is no break of the promise in, in God's Word. In, during the second temple period, here's a statistic that I found that I thought was interesting. There were 83 different high priests from the time of Solomon to the time of the destruction of the temple. 83 different ones. Right? We have one. His name is Jesus. And having one is much better than having 83 different ones. No earthly priest could ever hold that position because they would always die, but Jesus is always there. Jesus, being the eternal priest, is always going to be holy. He's always going to be righteous. He is always going to have access to the Father to plead on our behalf to be able to cover us and to care for us. He knows you. And here's the thing that... that when I, I meditated on this, as I thought about this, when did He know you? When did Jesus know you? Before the foundations of the earth, He knew you. Jesus has been your high priest as a Christ follower, as a child of God. Jesus has been your high priest even before the earth was formed. Even before you even needed one. It was determined that He would be there for you. And I thought about that and I thought, if He's known me that long, can I trust Him for everything? Absolutely. And not only that, He's known me that long and He knows my future and He loves me, including all of my warts and all of my sins and everything. His love for me will never, ever change. That's powerful when we think about this. We think about the fact that He is there for us all the time, consistently. 26 to 28, For, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like the priest to offer up sacrifice for his own sins, And then for the sins of the people, because he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as priests who are weak, but the word of the oath came after the law appoints the Son of Man and made perfect. Lastly, the ironic priesthood, every priest had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever offer sacrifice for somebody else. Jesus is perfect and he offered himself for you within that. When I think about all of this, why would I want to put my trust in any other human being? I I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I can follow pastors. There are different Bible teachers that I listen to, that I like to listen to, that I think God speaks through. Dr. Charles Stanley, who is with the Lord now, but to be able to, to listen to them and others that I listen to. Why? Because God uses them. I really wish they would update the shows, though, because I'm, I'm at the point in watching Dr. Charles Stanley from the 1970s, and so it's, it's a little rough. But the message of God is timeless. But when it comes to the day-to-day access to God, Charles Stanley is not standing before the throne of God on my behalf. Jesus is. And that's the one that we need to trust in. 
I've had times and, I, and I've known people that have followed pastors who have fallen from grace. They've fallen out of the pulpit, they've committed sin, and has devastated people's relationship with God. Do you know why? Because they worship the man more than Christ. And I'm here today to tell you, only follow Jesus. You're going to have many teachers and pastors and different people, but, but every human leader is that, is that human leader. Trust in God first. Chapter 8 is a, a shorter chapter within this 13 verses. The one thing that, that the high priest does and that Jesus brings is he brings a better ministry and a better covenant. When we take a look at these verses, we'll read through them, much of which after 8 is a, a reference to Old Testament in that New Covenant. He says this, and now the main point is what has been said. So, so all of this up till now has to get to this main point. The main point is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. So it's necessary. This high priest, being Jesus, has also have something to offer. What did he offer? His life. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there were those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve it as a copy or shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses warned by God, when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he says, See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted with a better promise. What is this new covenant? For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to stop for a second, much like the law. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which was made by their fathers, and on the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. And I will write on them in their hearts, and I will be their God, they'll be my people. And they shall not teach every and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he has said, A new covenant he has made with the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So, the main point is this. The better priesthood brings a better covenant. Do you remember what Jesus said the night before he died when he took the bread and the wine and he said to them, in giving him the cup, he says, this cup represents a what? New covenant. Ratified by my blood. And as often as you drink this, remember me. Did God have a number of covenants with the nation of Israel? Sure. The Adamic covenant. The Noahic covenant. The Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenant. We look at all of these different covenants and they were all agreements. 
Some of them were bilateral, some of them were unilateral. The, the unilateral covenant, like with Abraham, was a covenant that God made and God was only responsible for keeping that covenant. The Mosaic covenant, as he refers to here with the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, was a bilateral covenant. In other words, God said, I will be your God and I'm going to give you your law and you are going to be my people and you obey that law. So you have personal responsibility. I have personal responsibility back and forth. As he said in the text, though, the problem is the people broke the covenant. How did the people break the covenant? What did they do when they got out of Egypt? Made idols. At the bottom of Mount Sinai, while Moses is on top of the mountain, what are they doing? Building an altar to Baal. You remember the lame argument that Aaron said? Moses comes out, what did you do? I don't know, the people made me do it. Well, what happened? Well, I threw the gold in and out popped out this golden calf. Imagine that. Really? After all I've done, this covenant within this and the law that was there, the people that were brought into this place of the land, and God says, I'm going to give you this land. As part of the Abrahamic covenant, the people said, uh, we don't think so. One more time around the mountain. The location of the old covenant was based in the temple over the sacrifice. Where is the location of the new covenant based? In heaven. Ratified at the cross. Jesus holds that covenant true. When he said, this cup represents the new covenant of my blood, which I have given to you, as often as you drink this, remember me. Then he said, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until when? The marriage supper of the Lamb when we're gathered back into heaven. Why? Because that's when that whole covenant, new covenant, is fulfilled. Brought to flourishing within this. The other aspect that the writer says is that the, the, it's a better covenant and it's mediated by a better priest. Kept. The old covenant failed because of the sinfulness of the nation. The new covenant is kept because of the sinlessness of the mediator. You follow? Old covenant was failed because of the sins of the nation. They were incapable. The new covenant is kept by the sinlessness of the mediator, Jesus. Does that make you feel good? It should. Because it means that this new covenant cannot be broken by me. It's kept solely based on the responsibility of Jesus. And then here he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 34, in this quotation to demonstrate the days are coming, in effect, when I will give a new covenant. And that new covenant was ratified by Jesus for the house of Israel, not like the old covenant. When I took them out, they broke it. New covenant, I'm going to do something different. The old covenant was written on two tablets of stone. We call them what? Ten commandments, right? Where's the new covenant written? In our hearts and our minds. The old covenant was external to us. We had to go look at it. We had to look at it. We had to see it. We had to obey it. The new covenant is written in our hearts and minds internally, which allows us to be able to know what God expects from us as given to us even by the Holy Spirit. It's a better covenant because it is not written on stone. 
It is written in here. It's written in my heart, in my mind. And so when you go to God and you go, God, I don't know if, if, if you're going to forgive me. And you pray and God gives you that confidence internally. He says, yes, your, your sins are forgiven. You're set free. And the Holy Spirit affirms that covenant for us. Jesus ratified and held that covenant in his seat. The previous relationship was based off of stone and place. The new covenant is living and indwelling. What do you want? You want stone and building? Or do you want a living internal relationship? That's new covenant. And it's mediated by Jesus himself. And as he says, that which is obsolete is slowly disappearing. Why? Because the new is replacing the old. The old is just a shadow of something that is better. We shouldn't hang on to the old. Jesus ministers from a better place. Not a tent not a building, but He ministers from heaven through the Spirit within this. From a throne room that's, that's heavenly. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of His robe filling the temple. Isaiah was given a picture into heaven. We see that it is a much higher place. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Then where is the house that you would build for me and the place for my rest? Revelation chapter 7, 15. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. We studied that this morning in the men's group. Heaven is much bigger than you could ever imagine. Much more glorious than you could ever, ever think of. And cannot be replicated on earth. And you have access to that throne. You have access even now to that. We need to look up to the place where God dwells. And not look for anything on this earth that, it, that is going to be comparable to that. Everything that we see are just mere copies. The tabernacle is just a copy. Exodus 25, 9 says this, according to all that I'm going to show you as a pattern of the tabernacle, a pattern of its furniture, so you will construct. Why? Because God uses these patterns to teach us. But it's just a pattern. Church, our lives are a vapor. They are. Don't get too attached to them. The things and the patterns of worship by which we use. The songs that we sing are patterns. Don't get too attached to them. The building, don't get too attached to it. It's amazing when you go into some of the European communities and some of the other places. Amazing cathedrals that are built. That are empty. Empty. Why? It's just a building. The real place of worship is in our hearts. And it's 
We worship the, the Creator of the universe. Hebrews 9, 11-14 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of the creation, not through blood of goats or calves, but through His own blood, and He entered in the holy place, note, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers, sprinkling those who have defiled and sanctified and cleansing the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, therefore cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It saddens me to see this. On the Temple Mount today, there is a huge battle. What's the battle for? Possession of the Temple Mount. Why? Because the Jews want to rebuild the Temple. Don't they? And they have all the implements to rebuild. When we go to Israel, we're going to see all the stuff that's there. They want to do that. Why? They want to rebuild the Temple. They want to reinstitute sacrifice. They want to do all of this all over again. Why? Because they rejected Jesus, their high priest. And they rejected the truth. That God does not dwell in a house that man builds within this. Our high priest is in heaven. He gives to us a new covenant. And he's a better mediator for that covenant. And he declares that old covenant obsolete. I want to close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let go of the old. Embrace the, the new. Grow up and own that faith that, that God has given to you and enter into His presence daily. Now, mind you, I want to see you on Sunday. But you don't really need me. I'd like to see you on Wednesday. But you don't have to be here. But it's good for us not to forsake the assembling of the saints. Why? Because we come to this place to worship God and to bless one another. And to challenge each other to live a new, maturing, growing life. Until that day that the Lord takes us home. Well, let's pray. God, I thank you. For our time tonight, I thank you for the ability to study your word. There are some hard things in here that is difficult for us to relate to, not being Jewish and not having that history. Yet, Lord, it is a truth that we need to know that, Lord Jesus, you are the perfect high priest. You are the perfect representative of us before a holy God that declares us holy. May we push back and push away from those things of the old. May we embrace the things of the new and honor you with the totality of our life, giving you everything that pertains to the life of godliness. May we honor you in all these things, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Charlie, are you in here still? Did he go out there? All right. I was going to have him finish this off with the doxology, but I'm not one that sings, so I'm not going to hurt your ears. Tonight we're not going to be closing with a song because um, with uh, the word, is he right there? Yeah, go grab him.
Come here, Charlie. You're the only worship leader in the room. You've got to close this out with the doxology. I know you can. From whom all blessings flow, praise Him. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.